Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. months since Jeff Sessions resigned at President Trump's request, and the president appointed Matthew Whitaker to be acting attorney general. Now, President Trump has nominated a full-time replacement, William Barr, who was attorney general under George H.W. Bush to fill the position full-time. In the meantime, though, Whitaker's appointment has prompted a constitutional crisis, or at least that's according to veteran Supreme Court lawyer Tom Goldstein, who's pressing that claim at the high court in an unusual motion. But a prominent law professor and constitutional scholar, Steve Vladek, says that Trump's action is actually legal, even if it's unwise. We talked to both of these experts on this latest episode of Cases and Controversies to get to the bottom of one of the latest legal quandaries in the Trump era. All right. Can you say your name and uh, what you do for us? Uh, My name is Tom Goldstein. I'm a lawyer in Washington, D.C. I'm the publisher of Zagotis Blog. Great. So um, in in your motion, you call the situation um, with now acting Attorney General Whitaker a constitutional crisis. Can you tell us what really is at stake here from a legal perspective? Well, in the big picture, it's really a case about the meaning of the appointments clause, which kind of surprisingly is a little unsettled centuries after the country's founding. The government says that the president, under the Appointments Clause, can fire any principal officer, and those are the people that have to be confirmed by the Senate under the Constitution, and put in somebody who's not Senate-confirmed, so long as the president says that's temporary. And all that temporary means is that they won't be confirmed. So the government's kind of striking position here is that the Appointments Clause doesn't actually do anything. It's only statutes that limit how long somebody can serve in that way. Tom, there's an older Supreme Court case, the Eaton case, that's mentioned in the motions filed in the case. And in that case, it said that Senate confirmation wasn't necessary there to temporarily exercise powers of a principal officer. So what, what makes this case different in the Whitaker situation? Sure. So what the Supreme Court said in Eaton is that there had to be special and temporary circumstances. And the special is really, really important here, because if the president can just fire a principal officer and declare it temporary, well, then the Appointments Clause doesn't mean anything. So the statute in Eaton created vice consuls, and this was a case about the vice consul in Siam in the 1890s, Siam now being Thailand. So in Eaton, the Supreme Court said that you could have a non-confirmed official serve the functions of a principal officer in temporary and special circumstances. And the fact that they're special circumstances is really important because otherwise the president can just do this whenever he likes for as long as he likes. In Eaton, the special circumstances were that the consul general, who was our diplomatic uh, representative abroad in certain countries, would become sick or would leave or would die. And Congress had passed a law saying a vice consul could do the consul general's job in that time. And this is just radically different. Nobody is sick. Nobody has died. Nobody is absent. If uh, Sessions and Rosenstein, the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, had wanted to talk to each other and their windows opened, they could just lean out and and chat. Uh, There would be no reason at all for an acting appointment here except for the fact that the president 
didn't like Sessions and didn't like Rosenstein. And I think we all know that that had a lot to do with the Russia investigation. Well, so the motion that you filed in the Supreme Court is uh, a, a little unusual. Can you tell us about the motion? It's not a little unusual. It's a lot unusual. <laughs> I was being nice. <laughs> uh, the, the, the motion says that in this criminal case in which I'm involved, uh, Sessions is a named defendant, but he's no longer the attorney general. Everybody agrees with that. And under the rules of civil procedure and the Supreme Court rules and the rules of every court, when a government official leaves, you put in their successor. And the federal government has told the Supreme Court, well, his successor is Matt Whitaker. And I've told the Supreme Court, no, he is not. And so I have asked to substitute in the correct official, who I think is Rod Rosenstein. And this happens every once in a while. So, for example, Roy Moore, the famous judge in Alabama, Uh, When he was on the Alabama Supreme Court, he tried, even when he was removed, to keep filing briefs uh, in his official capacity, and a federal district court had to substitute him out and strike his pleadings. And so we have said, you know, this is just what courts do in the rare times that there are fights over who the right successor government official is. The courts have to resolve them. And so, Tom, just just procedurally here, given sort of the unusual posture of this, does does the Supreme Court even have to rule on your motion, or could they just rule on the underlying petition itself without even addressing the issue? Well, I will tell you that the first rule of Supreme Court procedure is that if you ask a question, can the Supreme Court do something? The answer is always yes. <laughs> so if you ask, can the Supreme Court ignore it? Absolutely. Uh, What the motion says is the only reason you should take this up is this question can't get to you otherwise. Remember, by statute, Whitaker has to be gone within seven months and probably will be gone well before then anyway, way before any case could get to the Supreme Court. And the government is busily arguing in the district courts where these fights are going on that nobody has the power to challenge Whitaker anyway. And so the motion says look, this is a huge deal, a massive problem, a wild interpretation of the Appointments Clause that is the kind of thing that the Supreme Court resolves, not the lower courts, ultimately. And the only way for you to resolve it is to jump in feet first here. Well, so you mentioned that um, this isn't the only place where this fight is kind of playing out. Um, And you're involved in another case um, that's moving pretty quickly. Can you tell us um, what's next um, in that case and a little bit about it? Sure. I'm involved in two active cases and two more that are blossoming kind of as we speak. The one that's furthest along is uh, a case in which I represent the state of Maryland. And one of its allegations is that when Jeff Sessions was attorney general, he certified to Congress that he wouldn't, starting January 1, 2019, defend different provisions of Obamacare. And we say that uh, Rod Rosenstein now has to make that determination rather than Matt Whitaker. Um, We also say that Rosenstein should be substituted, like we say in the Supreme Court case, and we say that Whitaker shouldn't be allowed to oversee the litigation. And so we ask for different forms of relief from the district court there. That is now fully briefed, and there is a preliminary injunction hearing on December 19th. And so getting back into the, the motion that's still pending at the Supreme Court, you use some pretty strong language that uh, people have been 
talking about since the motion was filed, you say this is a, a constitutional crisis. You accuse the government of resorting to inaugural crowd level math. You say uh, you talk about musical chairs and power grabs and very noteworthy things like that. What sort of led you to use such strong examples, uh, such strong language in a, a motion like this that maybe we don't typically see in Supreme Court filings? Yeah, I don't think people have regarded that as strong language. I think they've thought of it as incendiary. Right. Um, and it's uh, kind of for the reason that we're talking now, and that is the motion is unusual. And if I don't get the justices to kind of stop what they're doing in their tracks, then it's they're just going to pass it by as something that they've never seen before and have no need to confront. And so it's really to try and put in the most stark and dramatic terms what a crisis this is. And, you know, it's crisis a crisis in the sense that I described earlier in terms of interpreting the Constitution. But we say to the court, you just can't blink at reality here. This is in part about the Mueller investigation, that there's, you know, it's apparent to everybody who's paying attention that a real reason, if not the reason, that the president picked Matthew Whitaker was because of his criticism of the investigation, and the reason that he passed by Rod Rosenstein is because the president wanted Rosenstein to shut down the investigation. And there's going to be no way, we explain, for Robert Mueller himself to challenge Matt Whitaker's appointment because uh, Robert Mueller is part of the Department of Justice, and he has to accept the department's position that Matt Whitaker is in charge. So we say that on some level we are carrying his water. And so it's about a, a month since Sessions has resigned at President Trump's. Did you put air quotes around resigned? <laughs> yes. I heard uh, them that way. In the letter, it does, does say at uh, President Trump's request, and you do say in your motion that uh, you believe that President Trump would have fired Sessions otherwise. But now we're in a situation where there's talk of an actual full-time uh, attorney general potentially being appointed in William Barr. And so how would that affect this motion or any of the other challenges to Whitaker's appointment? Well, once there's a permanent attorney general, then any motion to substitute out Whitaker becomes moot automatically. And I say that to the Supreme Court, that's a reason they have to step in now because, you know, in three months, these kinds of challenges, you know, will not be active controversies because you wouldn't substitute out Whitaker. You'll have already substituted in whoever it is, Barr or something like that. If Whitaker does something in the meantime that's concrete, you can still challenge that. There's a doctrine in the law called the de facto officer doctrine that says if a government official has apparent authority to do something, you can't later come along and challenge it. But the Supreme Court has said that doesn't apply to the appointments clause. So if he does something and uh, is later de deemed not to be the proper acting attorney general, then what he did is invalid. And we explained to the Supreme Court that's going to be a horrible mess. Oh. And uh, we're making the same point to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that can you imagine if Whitaker is responsible for FISA warrants and then uh, and certifies them and then it turns out, you know, six months from now, a court uh, holds that he wasn't the correct attorney general. Uh, what in the world are we going to do about situations like that? Okay, well, uh, we've hit on Obamacare, uh, now national security, and even... Musical Adam. chairs. Yes, this is great. Thanks so much for joining us, Tom. 
Sure thing. Great talking with you guys. Now we're here with Professor Steve Vladek of the University of Texas Law School at Austin. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thanks for having me. So President Trump's move of appointing Matt Whitaker as acting attorney general has been widely denounced, as we all know. But you say that the move is actually legal, even if it might be unwise. Why is that? Well, I mean, I think we have to break out the two different legal questions. The first is whether the president had the statutory authority to name Mr. Whitaker as acting attorney general. And then the second is whether even if he did, um, the appointment violates the appointments clause of Article 2. So taking those in order, you know, the statutory question has two parts to it. The first is, um, is the Federal Vacancies Reform Act even available, um, given that the Justice Department has its own succession statute? And I guess I just, you know, I'm one of those who thinks that the Vacancies Reform Act um, is meant to coexist alongside the DOJ succession statute. There's legislative history from when Congress enacted it in 1998, suggesting it didn't mean to um, it didn't mean to sort of preserve the DOJ succession statute as the only mechanism for uh, re- replacing the Attorney General. Um, and then also, second and, and equally importantly, the Vacancies Reform Act requires that the vacancy have arisen from the permanent office holder resigning. I know, you know, it sort of looks and smells and feels to all of us like Jeff Sessions did not leave under his own terms, but he chose to call the resignation. And, you know, compared to former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara or former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates, who both, you know, insisted on being fired, um, I think the fact that Sessions said he was resigning would be enough to, you know, bring us within the auspices of the, of the Vacancies Reform Act. So that covers the, the statutory arguments. The constitutional question, honestly, to me, boils down to whether you can ever have um, someone who has not been confirmed by the Senate, like Mr. Whitaker, exercise the duties of a principal office of a cabinet secretary um, on a temporary basis. Um, and, you know, there's no question that the attorney general, the permanent attorney general, has to be confirmed by the Senate. But the Supreme Court has held for over 120 years, and the Justice Department has consistently interpreted the appointments clause to provide that someone who exercises the duties of a permanent office, even on a temporary basis, um, is not a principal officer, but is an inferior officer. And under the appointments clause, inferior officers don't have to be confirmed by the Senate. So, you know, I guess my reaction to the arguments are, I understand why people think acting cabinet secretaries, the acting attorney general, should have to be Senate confirmed. Um, but I think it would prove too much if, for example, you had a situation where there was no one um, in an agency, in a department, who had been Senate confirmed, um, then, you know, by that logic, the president would be powerless to have anyone running the agency to have the agency doing anything until and unless the Senate agreed to confirm one of his nominees. So that's how I get from, you know, the uh, certainly a troubling and problematic appointment um, is not necessarily an illegal and unconstitutional one. Right. And so now that we have a, a nomination for a, a full-time person to take over in, in William Barr, how does that affect the issue in terms of the prospect of there being a, a full-time replacement to take over Whitaker's role? Yeah, I mean, I think so, so legally, the fact that um, the president on Friday nominated William Barr to become the, the new attorney general, um, the first thing it does is it, is it extends the clock 
with regard to how long Mr. Whitaker can serve as acting attorney general if he is validly appointed. Um, the statute says 210 days or for so long as there is a nominee um, whose nomination is pending. So, you know, at least as a matter of, of law, this presumably means unless a court strikes down the appointment that Whitaker can now serve until and unless, you know, Mr. Barr is confirmed. Um, practically, Jordan, I think it does take some of the pressure off of the different legal challenges to Mr. Whitaker's appointment because it suggests that, you know, this is going to be a temporary short-term problem and not necessarily a permanent one. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think it necessarily moves those challenges, but it might at least optically, you know, put less pressure on the courts to feel like they have to resolve this sooner rather than later, as opposed to letting the political process resolve it for them. And so zeroing in on some of those pending legal challenges, the one that perhaps is the most high profile, the one that's pending at the Supreme Court, the substitution motion, how specifically do you think that will be affected by the prospect of a full-time Senate-confirmed attorney general taking over? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I think it was... I think it was a bit of a long shot to begin with to try to have the Supreme Court jump all the way over the lower courts um, and decide a question that the lower courts haven't all had a chance to resolve yet. You know, the Supreme Court's very um, insistent, especially lately, that it's a court of review, not first view. So I guess I always thought that it was a bit of a stretch to try to have the court go first. Um, I think that's especially going to be true if the justices are of the view that this is really just a short-term problem at most. Um, and if it looks like, you know, the Senate is going to be in a position to confirm Mr. Barr, at least to have hearings to confirm Mr. Barr in relatively short order in January. So, I, you know, I think it reduces the likelihood that the Supreme Court is going to resolve the issue either in, you know, the, the motion that Tom Goldstein and his co-counsel have brought or in the other cases that are working their way up from the lower court. So then given that, is there a particular challenge that you think might be the most successful that we should be watching out for, or, 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 or might that not have even arisen yet? Are they sort of all as good as the others, maybe save for the one that's pending at the Supreme Court? No, I mean, I do think there are some important differences in the challenges. I mean, I think, you know, the, the motion in the Supreme Court is simply about who should be the named respondent um, in a cert petition that's not challenging direct personal action by the attorney general. Um, I think that's different and to me less compelling than a case where, you know, Matthew Whitaker, as the nominal acting attorney general, um, has actually put his name, to, you know, to paper um, and is directly responsible for uh, a removal order in an immigration case or, you know, the assignment of a prosecutor in a criminal case um, or, as you know, one especially prominent example, the new rules about eligibility for asylum at the border. It seems to me that in those contexts, courts will have a much stronger um, claim that they have to resolve the issue because the validity of the action itself is going to depend upon, you know, whether Whitaker was was validly appointed. Well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective on that. And thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, everybody, for following along with our deep dive. As always, you can follow all of the latest Supreme Court news with Bloomberg Law at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks so much for listening.